Thank you. <clears throat> I may bang the pulp a little bit more today just to make sure that we're, uh, we're all awake. But Ruth chapter 1, we'll read from verse 14 to 17 this morning. Do we look at that passage? And it says, <clears throat> And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah, and sorry, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, I will, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord's do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Let's, uh, let's pray before we uh, get into this passage. Heavenly Father, we uh, do thank you once again for the privilege we have of uh, looking into your word and the blessing it is to have it here, Lord. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the presence of your spirit this morning. And I pray even now that he would be working on our hearts, Lord, to teach us your ways. And I pray at this moment also that our hearts would be yielded to you, that our ears would be attentive, that our minds would uh, not be distracted by the things around us, Lord, but that we would be focused firmly and solely upon you and how we may learn to be more like you. We thank you once again for this time. And we pray that the name of Jesus would be lifted up in this place. In his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> for those of you who know me for a while, you probably worked out that I come from an Italian background. Is that, have you worked that out yet? Okay. For those of you who hadn't worked that out, I hope it doesn't come as too much of a shock to you. But Italians and different culture around the world, and I'll focus on the Italians for the moment, have different ways of showing affection. Have you realised that? When I was growing up, <coughs> kissing was very much part of our culture, especially among relatives. Um, whenever you'd go and visit a relative, cousins, uncles, aunts, grandfathers, there's a lot of kissing that takes place. Kissing on the cheek, that is. It's very commonplace among family and close friends. And it doesn't matter which sex either. Uncles, aunties, everyone just, just kisses hello and goodbye. It's very common, and even, even now, I, uh, when I see my mum, I kiss her on both cheeks, I kiss my grandfather as well, so it's, it's, it's a common thing for us to do. <clears throat> I remember when I was a young boy kissing some of my aunties and feeling some of those, uh, those whiskers. And men in the Italian culture often exchange kisses as well. Very common for older men to, to kiss hello and goodbye. It's a form of uh, affection and greeting. I remember when we went to Italy, I think it was, was it our honeymoon? What in the second time? And uh, caught up with uh, uh, Miria's family over there in a place called Sulmona, a little town, a little Roman town. They had, had aqueducts and all these things all around. It was actually quite beautiful. And I got to meet her cousin's husband. And we actually got along quite well. I mean, as far as I could, I could speak to him in, in Italian, it's very rudimentary. Um, we actually had some great conversations. He loved it, wanting, he wanted to know a lot about our culture and about politics and things like that and comparing the Australian with the Italian. And I remember one day we walked down towards the, the square 
Okay, it was a beautiful evening, it was nice and cool, and, and we started to walk down together, the few of us. And then as we were walking down the road together, and he's about my age, um, he grabs my arm and he locked my elbow with his elbow, like arm in arm, like this. So I found myself walking down the road with another man. <clears throat> I wasn't used to that. At first of all, I'm thinking, all right, what do I do here? Do I, do I try to shake him free? Or do I try to uh, just play along and see how it goes? But after a while, I mean, we saw other people doing it. So it was just a, a form of friendship to walk down the road, arm, two guys arm in arm. There was nothing more than that. So, and I know different cultures have different ways of actually expressing friendship and, and, and affection towards each other. In, in Italy, if you um, receive a, a kiss from a certain individual, a certain man, it may be very bad news for you as well. The Lebanese are even worse, apparently. The Lebanese aren't unhappy with just two kisses. The Lebanese need how many? Three. At least three, huh? Can't work out where the third one comes from. Is there a reason for the third one? Okay. But kissing can be a sign of affection, a sign to say hello to one another. And as I did a little bit more looking at kissing in the Bible... I actually found something very interesting. You know how they say, you know how we often say as part of our teaching, if it mentions it once in the Bible, it's important, right? If it mentions it twice, God's really, really serious about it. You know how many times it asks us to kiss each other in the Bible? Five times. It says in Romans 16, 16, salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. 1 Corinthians 16, 20. All the brethren greet you. Greet ye one another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13.12 Greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5.26 Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. 1 Peter 5.14 Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Got that? Gone? Next Sunday I'll be... Uh, I'll start with you. I just wonder whether we should be following these scriptures a bit more, but I don't know. <clears throat> But while kisses um, for greeting are nice, while they're sweet, kisses goodbye can be bitter, can't they? Kisses goodbye can be, um, can be bad. I recently witnessed the death of my father-in-law in hospital. And we were there, all of us, and we watched him take his last breaths. And I watched as my sister-in-law was, 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 um, was rubbing his hair and, uh, and kissing him goodbye. That was a final kiss goodbye for her, for her dad. It was a very bitter kiss. The most infamous kiss in scripture was which? Was the, the kiss that Judas gave to Jesus. And in a sense, that was also a kiss goodbye. It was a, a kiss goodbye saying, I'm not prepared to do it your way anymore. I want to do it my way, the world's way. And I'm going to force this situation to take place to either reveal that you're true as a Messiah or not. Judas had gone the world's way of doing things. Do you remember that most of the disciples, when Jesus started with them, expected him to actually come and, and take up arms and, and actually fight against the Romans. When Jesus told them that that wasn't to be the case, some of them got disappointed. Many of Jesus' disciples left him. 
Judas' kiss was a mark goodbye. Now we're looking at this passage where we have three women, Naomi, Ruth and Orpah. Naomi was a mother-in-law. Uh, Ruth and Orpah, her, her, um, her uh, daughters-in-law. Now, what had happened, had, they got to this particular stage, and I'll just give you a quick summary. Years before, some 10 years or more, um, Naomi's husband had decided to move from Israel to Moab because there was a, a, a drought or there was a famine in Israel. So he decided to move to a different country. And they lived for, there for a number of years. Was it a good decision? Probably not. The Moab, the Moab people were um, very different in culture to the, to the Israelites. They had different gods, different traditions and customs. And as it happened, um, Naomi's husband died soon after they got there. And her two sons married two Moabite women. As it happened, both her sons died as well after, after a 10-year period. And she was left with the, the prospect of not having a man to, to su support them, to supply for their need. No protection. So Naomi at one stage thought, I think it's time for us to go back to my people. She thought to herself, it's time. I've got family over there. They may be, it may be better to do that. Time to go back. And why did she go back? Well, it says in Ruth chapter 1, verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord, and that's Jehovah, had visited his people in giving them bread. In other words, it was reversed now. Jehovah was supplying the needs of his people. And Naomi heard that. Things weren't that crash hot in Moab. So she thought, let's time, let's time, it's time to go back. Naomi decided it was time to return home to her own people. Now, she's got two daughters-in-law who married into the family. They're still in Moab. They have family still there. They have families and friends still there. And she warns both of them about returning back with her. She warned both of them, not just once, but twice. And at first, both daughters-in-law committed to going back with her. But then as she warned a second time and said, well, what am I, going to, I can't guarantee you anything. I don't know what I'm going to find when I get back. I can't give you any more sons for you to marry. And she didn't even know if her own people would accept them into the community. Plus, three women travelling from one country to another can be quite a risky venture. So there was no guarantee of safety either. Both of them had committed to staying with Naomi, but on the second warning, Orpah said, I'm going to go back. And they cried together. Obviously, Orpah had an affection for Naomi, as did Ruth. But Orpah decided it wasn't worth the risk. It's better to go back, safer for her to go back to her own people, back to her own custom. So what did she do? She kissed Naomi goodbye.
Only one of the daughters-in-law had truly committed to going back. The other one had only half committed when she searched within herself where she really wanted to be. The answer was back with her own people. Only one fully gave her heart to Naomi. The other one was still holding on to Moab and its ways. Ruth, on the other hand, gave herself wholly to her mother-in-law. She loved her immensely. And she had accepted, in the scripture it says, that she accepted her people, her and her God as well. She embraced all that she was, including Jehovah. And it says, while, while Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, what's the word that it uses for Ruth? It says that she clave to her. Clave. We don't use that word too often these days. And as I look through the Bible on the number of occurrences, it's not used that often as well. But to cleave means to cling to, to join together, to chase and, and, and to catch, to stick together. Mind you, to cleave actually can mean the opposite as well. Because to cleave can actually mean to split something in half. So cleave can mean to either join together and to hold on to or to split something in half. But in this particular case, it means to hold on to. Now Ruth didn't want to let her mother-in-law go. Now this word cleave is actually quite a strong word. And there's, there's a, a, a picture that's painted in the Bible about how strong it is. Turn to Matthew chapter 19 verse 4 and we'll see a wonderful definition of how important or how strong this word cleave is. Matthew 19, uh, 4 says, And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore may God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Is that a strong word? That's an extremely strong word. Cleaving is such a strong word that actually it's used to describe a man and a woman becoming one flesh. They're cleaving to each other. But it's used the same word to refer to Ruth cleaving to her mother-in-law. But what was she cleaving to? Why did she cleave so strongly to her mother-in-law? Well, I believe, I believe that we have to fix up the sign. I believe it wasn't just because Ruth loved her mother-in-law. They may have had a great relationship, but Ruth had taken on all that her mother-in-law represented. She represented her people, she represented their traditions and customs and their way of life, and she represented God. She represented the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and she had accepted him 
as well. So she claved not just to Naomi, she claved to God himself. In cleaving to, to Naomi, Ruth was saying, I'm going to reject my own traditions, my own people, my gods, and I'm going to accept yours. Naomi had given her the choice to return to her people and her gods, but she was convinced that Jehovah was the true God. She claimed not only to Naomi, but the God of Israel as well. And she was convinced that if Naomi left and she wasn't with her, then she would lose everything that was attached or associated with Naomi, including God himself. She'd have to go back to her people who did not know God. In Naomi, Ruth saw the door to salvation. She saw that door. It was there. And if she didn't go through that door, she'd have to go back to where she came from. It was either Naomi or Moab. Naomi or the world. It was only Naomi who knew the way to get back to her people. And her people represented fellowship with God's people. In Naomi, Ruth saw the path to being with God's people and to his worship. In Naomi, Ruth saw the avenue to truth because it was Naomi's people that held the truth. God had given them the truth and they were the custodians of that truth. In Naomi, Ruth saw life because when she looked back at the detestable ways of her own people, she only could see death. Death was epitomised quite strongly in, in the Moabite uh, religion. I'm not sure if you guys know much about the Moabite gods over there. The stuff they used to do was quite horrendous. Chemosh was the national god, let's say, of Moab. And this god was honoured with often cruel and perverse sacrifices or practices where they would even sacrifice their own children to him to keep him happy. That was what she was going to go back to if she wasn't with Naomi. They would sacrifice their children to Moloch as well. And God hated those practices. He hated the following of, of those gods. And unfortunately, Israel, because they were so close in proximity, Israel, during periods, would take on the practices of these gods. Even Solomon got caught up in this. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. First Kings chapter 11 verse 6. It says there, And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for who? Chemosh. The abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Moloch the abomination of the children of Ammon. Even 
Solomon, King Solomon, with all his wisdom and all his, uh, and all his knowledge, fell to following these detestable gods. Often the people of Moab were identified or called the people of Chemosh. Ruth knew what her people were all about. She knew all their practices. Now I've come from an Italian background, right? I know what the Catholic Church is about. I know the traditions that that are linked, interlinked, between the Italian traditions or customs and the Church, and the Catholic Church. The same goes with Greek, Greek Orthodox. They are so, their religion and their traditions are so intertwined, their customs are so intertwined, that you can't separate the two. And often in our cultures, there are traditions and practices that are very bad. Every culture has good things in it. Every culture has certain aspects which are actually quite good. But every culture has things which, or traditions and customs, which actually take you away from God. And this culture was no different. The question was, or the question is for us, how much of our, cult, our culture do we allow to stand in the way of our fellowship with God? But in accepting the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Ruth chose to reject the gods of Moab. To reject those customs and traditions which were attached to their worship. And she decided to cleave to the Lord. Ruth made a decision to choose the hard road. The road ahead of her was not clear. When she looked back, she knew what she was going to get. You know that phrase where they say, it's better the devil you know? Well, she knew the devil in Moab. She knew him quite well. The road ahead of her, she didn't know that well. She knew who God was. She liked God. She, she loved Naomi. She loved maybe what the God, uh, the God of uh, Israel represented, or who he was compared to the, the gods of, uh, of Moab. But she didn't know what was going to come ahead of her. When she went on that journey with, uh, with uh, Naomi, she didn't know what would become of her. She may have been rejected by, by Naomi's people. She may have gone there and they may have starved. They may have been killed along the way. She didn't know. For her, it was a complete change and a huge risk. But she was willing to take that risk for what she believed. Now, what does this have to do with us? Well, the, the story of Ruth and Orpah is a story of two types of people in this world. One who has genuinely decided to follow Jesus and cleave to him. And the other plays the part of a believer. When things are smooth, when things go easy, when things are okay, when there's no persecution, no trials and tribulation, it's okay. I can play that, that game. I can play that part. But when things get hard, when things become unknown, when things get difficult, when persecution rises, they start to wither and fall. This is the story also of Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Ishmael, Abraham and Lot, David and Saul. The list goes on in Scripture. Scripture continually gives us one character which, is repre which represents a person who genuinely cleaves to God. And then it compares and contrasts them with those that play the part but whose hearts aren't God's. 
Even the parables of our Lord focus on the same thought, comparing side by side the genuine and the imitation, the real and the fake, the true follower of the Lord and the wolf in sheep's clothing. Matthew 7.21 says this, Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Did they believe that they were following along? Yes, obviously they did. Because when they presented themselves in front of him, they said, Lord, Lord, they called him Master. Jesus said, I never knew you. It's one thing to follow the Lord when, uh, when things are all nice and easy. It's another thing to follow him when things start turning bad. There are many people who say they love and know Jesus. Look at most people out there, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you they love Jesus, they know Jesus. But the truth is not there. When trials come, when persecution comes, when the heat gets turned up, they fall away. When temptations come, when the sin comes knocking at the door again, they're all too quick to say, yeah, I'm going to go that way. And they kiss Jesus goodbye. When a rich young man came to Jesus and asked, probably the most, one of the most important questions you could ever ask, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I gain eternal life? And Jesus explained to him. Jesus responded by saying, Go and sell everything you've got. Go and sell all that they have. And give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Cleave to me. The man bowed his head and left. This man was in the same situation as Ruth and Orpah. He was in a situation where he actually thought to himself, what is it that I want to do? See, many people go through life not actually thinking about what they're doing. I know that's true. Because most people who profess to believe in God, when you ask them a few simple questions about why they believe or what they believe, they have absolutely no idea. So all they've done is taken on the tradition of their, their parents or someone's told them something, so they're just going along for the ride because you know coming to church is a wonderful thing, is it not? Having all these friends around you, so supportive, praying for you all the time, helping you here and there, that's a wonderful thing to have. Even if you don't know Jesus. Even if you're not really clinging to him. The question really asks is, do I follow, do I cleave to him, or do I or is my heart with the world? In the young man's case, he did as Orpah did and left Jesus for the world. When a push came to shove, when he really examined where his heart was, it wasn't God's. He was close to the kingdom, close, but very far at the same time. The decision he made didn't necessarily seal his fate, but that it revealed what was really in him. You cannot hold on to Jesus and hold on to the world at the same time. 
And it's during difficult times in our lives, during times of tribulation and persecution and temptation, where our hearts really revealed. What do we do? What decision do we make when we sit down and think about what we want to do? In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. You know a kiss can be a cheap form of affection? A kiss can be a very cheap form of affection because it's over, it can be over in an instant. I can close my eyes and kiss and say goodbye. But to cleave, that requires effort. To cleave, to hold on to, requires effort, conviction and humility. Because when I'm cleaving to someone, what I'm saying in essence is, I need you. I need you. Not you need me, but I need you. It requires humility. A Russian pastor who was comparing the church in communist Russia, when Russia was communist, to the church in, in America or the West, made this interesting observation. Now listen to what he said. In Russia, Christians are tested by hardship, by persecution. They can be thrown in jail at any time. But in America... You're tested by your freedom. And testing by freedom is actually harder. Nobody pressures you about your religion. So you relax. You're not so concerned or focused on Christ. Your guard is down on his teachings and how he wants you to live. My brothers and sisters, do we understand that we are tested in this country as much as those who are in communist China and in, in Islamic countries. We are tested just as much by the freedom that we have and those who are having church services huddled up in their homes at night. We're tested more. Because what do we do with this freedom? What are we doing with it? When we stand one day before the Lord, we have to give an account of the freedom which we have. And there's a scripture that comes to mind which says, to whom much is given, much is required. We have much. When we compare what we have in this country to those poor Christians maybe in China who share a Bible, maybe handwritten between, between a number of families, we have much. When they have to go meeting together in, in secret ways in the way David was explained to us they have to go at separate times because they may be uh, thrown in jail we have much to answer for everything's open here everything's free, I can do what I want say what I want, no one's going to throw me in jail for saying I'm a Christian, no one's going to throw me in jail for handing someone a track or talking to someone about the Lord but one day we have to give an account Have we counted the cost? Have we counted truly the cost of binding ourselves to Jesus while living in this world? Where a hundred profess to know God, but 95 show no fruits at all. How are we different to them? What signs of repentance have we shown? 
What fruits are we giving to the Lord? Ruth was willing to risk her life, her reputation, her future, to follow a widow to a foreign country. She had enough trust in Naomi, an old woman, to, to lead her to a foreign country back to God and her people and that fellowship. How confident are we with following our Lord? The author and finisher of our faith, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. How confident are we? If Ruth could follow her mother-in-law and say, yes, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to cleave to you, how strongly do we cleave to our Lord? The riches of Moab and the riches of this world are no match for the glory that's waiting for us. No match. No comparison. And the glory that's waiting for us is for us when we see our Lord. When we see him face to face. Turn to Acts chapter 11 with me as we start to wrap this thing up. Acts chapter 11. Certain Christians in Antioch, certain men, had heard the gospel and became Christians. They believed in Jesus. And they heard about it back in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. So they sent out Barnabas. Barnabas is a nice guy in scripture. He's a very nice guy. Son of consolation, I think they, um, is his name. He's always an encourager. When, when, the, when the disciples in Jerusalem first saw Paul, they were scared of him because Paul used to kill Christians. Barnabas is the one who came alongside and said, this guy's alright. I trust this guy. I've seen the change in him. We should, we should accept him. Barnabas has a very consoling spirit, encouraging. Look in Acts chapter 11 verse 20. It says, And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they came to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. When tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which were in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all, look at this, with per- with that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. That was, his, that was his commendation or recommendation to them. You believer, cleave unto the Lord with all your heart. Cleave to him. That's the advice he gives to the, um, the, the, the new believers in Antioch. With all their heart, let go of the world and hold on to him. Let go of any traditions or customs or sin that hold you back from holding him with both arms. Don't hold him with one arm and hold on to something else on the side. Let go of everything else that hinders you and hold on to him for dear life because he is our life. And this is the heart of the matter that separated Orpah and Ruth. The heart. The heart is the, the name of the game here. The heart is what distinguishes the real believer 
from the false. The heart. Who owns your heart? Our Lord said either make the tree good and his fruit good or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt for the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. The real question today that we have to ask ourselves as professing believers is who owns my heart? Who owns it? For from the heart choices are made. From the heart decisions are formulated. From the heart love comes. From the heart the mouth speaks. That's why Proverbs tells us in 4.23 Keep thy heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. Lose your heart to the world and face death. Jesus expressly tells us in Matthew He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Does that make you cringe a little bit? Some people say that's unreasonable for him to say. I've heard it said that how can, how can Jesus ask such a question? How can he expect us to love him more than our own families? That's the, what he wants. And he that taketh not his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Orpah's heart was owned by the world. Ruth's heart was owned by the Lord. Orpah is never mentioned anymore in scripture, is she? You don't hear of Orpah doing anything else after this particular event. She left and that's the end of her story. Went back to her people. Ruth, on the other hand, Ruth. There's a whole story that revolves around Ruth and the redemption that takes place there. I encourage you to read the rest of the, of the book of Ruth. But there's something even more striking about Ruth. Ruth was from Moab. She wasn't an, an Israelite. She wasn't born a Jew. But you know something? God allowed through Ruth's line for Jesus to be born. Think about that for a moment. Because she said, my choice is to follow and cleave to God and to Naomi, God put her in a line of people, of a godly line that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to be born through. Let me close with a... Um, with a picture of cleaving. Turn to Matthew chapter 28 verse 5. There were, we've looked at two women in Ruth. One clave to the Lord, the other one kissed God and her mother-in-law goodbye. Now we see another two women in Scripture. The two women that came to the grave after Jesus had been crucified. And it says they saw an angel, these two women, both named Mary, Mary Magdalene and another Mary. 
And in verse 5 it says, And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him, lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulchre with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet. They worshipped him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you're one of those women running to tell the disciples about you'd seen an angel and all of a sudden your Lord presents himself and says, Hey there. Can you imagine the, the joy? Can you, imagine, can you imagine the emotions that are stirred up in you? And I, you know something? I believe that they did what most of us would also do if we saw him here. Notice it says they held him by the feet. You know to hold somebody by the feet, where are you? You're on the ground. They clave to him. There is no more vivid picture I can give you than that about cleaving to our Lord. There's no stronger picture that I can share than that one there of what it means to cleave to Jesus Christ. Does he own you today? Does he own your heart? Are you cleaving to him with all your might? If you're not, let go of everything else. Let go. It's no good. And if you really cleave to the Lord, kiss the world goodbye. God bless you. Thank you.